Hello and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Robert J. Davis, also known as the Healthy Skeptic, is an award-winning health journalist. His work has appeared on CNN, PBS, WebMD, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He's the author of a new book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat, and The Truth About What Really Works, which will be released this year, 2021. He has also written three previous books on health, including The Healthy Skeptic and Fitter Faster, The Smart Way to Get in Shape in Just Minutes a Day. He hosts the Healthy Skeptic video series, which dissects the science behind popular health claims. Davis holds an undergraduate degree from Princeton University, a master's degree in public health from Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, and a PhD in health policy from Brandeis University, where he was a Pew Foundation Fellow. Dr. Davis, such an honor to welcome you to Brown the Spotty Radio. Thank you so much, Casey. It's great to be with you. It's it's awesome to have you. I think we mainly invited you because you wrote a book also, which we didn't mention in the intro, all about coffee and how it's good for you. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what made you uh, decide to write that book? Well, actually, the book covers coffee. That's true. But I also cover a number of other uh, health claims, everything from red meat to red wine. And I try to look at the science behind the claims uh, and help readers know what's believable, what's not, what's true, what's half true, what's false. Well, that's awesome. I have not got my hands on that book yet, but if you came to take coffee out of my hands, uh, we might get into an altercation, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about that book is that I don't even drink coffee, not because it's bad for me, because I don't necessarily like the taste, but people always thought it was curious that I wrote a book called Coffee is Good for You, uh, even though I'm not a coffee drinker. So no one can accuse me of bias, I no, guess, in that case. No confirmation bias there. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, about 15 minutes before this conversation, I sent you a video. It's one of my favorites. We've talked about it a few times on the show. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it or not. Um, have you seen the, the YouTube video? It's a short one from Funny or Die called The Time Traveling Dietitian. I have not. Okay. I'm sorry to look at it. Totally fine. I, I gave you no heads up or no warning. And I'm going to spoil it anyway. Um, it's I think it's dated like 1979 or something. This couple's like enjoying their breakfast and big flash in the background. And this guy comes rushing in. He's like, wait, don't eat those eggs. Those eggs are bad. They're going to kill you. They're terrible for you. And the family's like, wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And he, he leaves. And then flash comes back a few seconds later. Like, wait, we got it wrong about the eggs. Part, eat the whites. Don't eat the yolks. <laughs> And he keeps coming back and forth and back and forth, changing his mind about everything. At one point, he says everybody needs to eat paleo and comes back like totally banged up, like, don't eat paleo. They, those guys are not doing well right now. <laughs> I love it. That it, is brilliant. That it, is great. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I think your book does such a great job um, kind of help helping to illustrate that same point. Like we, we, we change our minds about this stuff a lot, don't we? Absolutely. And it makes it so hard, so hard to figure out what we should do because we get these conflicting messages. We get all kinds of claims. Uh, and you know, it's made even worse by the internet, by social media. And so, yeah, that's what I try to do with this book. And that's what I try to do with all my work is to help uh, people sift through all this conflicting information because there's so much. Mm, interesting. Before we dive into some of the topics that you cover in the book, I would love to hear your story. I know in the book you said you were called Husky, and I remember being called that too myself, and I don't even know what it meant. I just know that it wasn't good. Right. Yeah, I grew up um, with hearing words like that, and I remember one time somebody told me that I was full-seated, uh, things like that, euphemisms that I, I came to understand meant that I was fat, that I was overweight, and I uh, struggled with that as a kid. And even though as I grew, I became thinner, in my mind, in a way, I'm still an overweight kid, even though I'm very fit now. And I, uh, and I, I think most people would not say that I'm overweight. But I think what I've learned through that experience is uh, the power of labels and what that does to people throughout their lives of how they perceive themselves when it comes to their weight, um, regardless of how they actually appear. And so um, it's something I've tried to address in this book, and it's really helped inform how I've approached this topic, because the psychological side, the emotional side of this is just as important, if not more so than the physical aspects of weight. It's so interesting how many of us carry those, those you know, things that people say, almost like a, a childhood trauma. When did you start to realize that, that the truth wasn't necessarily being told by people in the health industry? You know, I think when I got to college, I, I, I developed an interest in uh, personal health, wellness, prevention, and started reading a lot. And 
um, first of all, realized that a lot of the assumptions I'd had or things I thought were true growing up were not true. Um, you know, I, for example, I, our family had always drunk 2% milk and I always thought, oh, that's, that's low fat milk. And it wasn't until I got to college and started getting interested in nutrition and realizing, well, it's not that much, doesn't have that much less fat than whole milk. And it's probably, um, you're, you're better off with skim milk if you're trying not to eat fat. Of course, later on, then I realized that fat maybe not, doesn't matter as much as we were told. Nevertheless, it was in college that I started to recognize that. And then, um, as in my work as a journalist started being, uh, when I got out of college as a health journalist, uh, started being bombarded with press releases from all kinds of entities, um, trying to push whatever their treatment was or whatever their cure was or whatever their preventive method was sometimes coming from respected institutions, from universities and so forth. And realizing this is all that a lot of this is just propaganda. This is people sp trying to spin me as a journalist to get me to promote whatever it is they're, uh, they're trying to sell. And um, I think it was that experience combined with my college experience that made me um, even more wary of all this information I was getting to make me really want to uh, try to take the skepticism that I was learning as a journalist and try to help uh, consumers have the same kind of skepticism about the information that they're getting. Mm. This is why I'm just so grateful for people like you, journalists, engineers, people that are outside of the medical system who are almost like whistleblowing the whole thing because the, the, the system is so well established at this point. It's just not very likely that we're going to see change coming from the top down, right? I think that's unfortunately true. And I just think there's so many vested interests and so much incentive for people, so many people to not, and, and, and they may not be lying, not necessarily lying, but um, uh, spinning, spinning us and shading the truth in a way that makes whatever they're uh, advocating appear as beneficial as possible. And so I think it's, in many cases, we're not dealing with outright lies, we're dealing with half-truths or with exaggerations or with hype. And so, yes, the, the system is set up to uh, encourage that kind of hype and that kind of exaggeration, um, and, and largely because of financial reasons. Mm. And your book specifically focuses on weight loss. How? What were some of the things that happened that set us just so awry <laughs> as a society as far as gaining weight and obesity? Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And I think one of the things I talk about is when somebody says they have the answer or they focus on a single culprit, uh, they're either naive or foolish or both or lying perhaps, but because it is complex phenomenon. There are a number of factors, I think, that have played a role. One, obviously, is just the sheer ubiquity of food. Everywhere we go these days, and it's been this way for increasingly over the years, we, we're in, we encounter food, whether we go to the airport, whether we go to the office, whether we go to Home Depot, whether we go to Office Depot, wherever we go, there's food there tempting us. And I think the fact that there's more and more food available to us everywhere we go has resulted in people eating more and more and more. I think that's undeniable. Also, obviously, the way that we, we go out to eat more and restaurants have increasingly uh, given us larger portion sizes. So we eat more, we go out more to eat and whenever we go out, we tend to eat more. And then restaurants service gigantic portion sizes. That's exacerbated the problem. So I think certainly just the sheer ubiquity of food matters, but the food industry plays a large role in this as well. Um, obviously, the food industry has cranked out all kinds of highly processed foods, uh, convenience foods that we understandably eat because of our busy lifestyles. But these foods, uh, research shows to a great extent can contribute to obes obesity and are contributing to obesity. And then paradoxically, uh, foods that are supposedly diet friendly, we have lots of these that are diet friendly, that are low in fat or low in carbs or low in sugar, whatever the case may be. Um, Paradoxically, these foods, because they are processed, even though they're supposedly diet friendly or good for our health, actually can make the problem worse because these they're still processed foods. And the fact that we have um, huge amounts of advertising aimed at us from everywhere to get us to buy these foods obviously um, makes it worse because we tend to eat more of these and in many cases think we're doing ourselves a favor by eating foods that are supposedly diet friendly that are doing just the opposite. Um, so that's a, that's a factor as well. Um, and then I think extra, the, the, our sedentary lifestyles, uh, we can talk more about exercise. I know you're, you're all about exercise and I am too. And I certainly promote exercise as part of a healthy lifestyle. And I think exercise clearly is indicated as a way to help prevent weight gain. Now I do talk about in the book and we can talk about this later. It's not a great way to lose weight, but nevertheless, the fact that we have a sedentary, uh, 
nation sedentary lifestyle, uh, our society is set up for us not to move or to move as little as possible. I think that's contributed to weight gain as well. So um, uh, certainly the list goes on, but those are some of the major factors I see that have contributed to the situation we're now in. Mm, I could not agree more, especially about exercise. I think that is a very misunderstood way to control weight. I think I think movement is amazing. Kind of like you said, you referred in the book to um, you know the Biggest Loser contest and what they do to lose weight, and kind of following the the model of calories in, calories out. And you know they make people exercise like six hours a day. And the study they did in 2016 showed that their metabolic rates never recovered years after doing the contest. And those people regained a lot of the weight, um, that they had lost in the first place. And so can you comment a little bit about the, the idea that we're sold, um, you call it Elm or eat less, move more. Yeah. So I like to say, you know, sometimes that's, we hear that eat less, move more Elm. And I like to say Elm street is a dead end for so many people, um, because they're told that the key to weight control is simply, just eat less food and exercise and you'll lose weight. And people find obviously that it doesn't work for them. And the reason it doesn't work, just as you say, is that it's not just about uh, the calories in and calories out model because there are lots of other factors that play a role in weight regulation. And so our bodies, one of the things that you referred to, perhaps the most important, is our bodies respond to what we do. So that when we take in fewer calories um, and we uh, lose weight, our metabolism slow down. So that uh, essentially what the body is saying is that we sense that you're heading toward famine mode or are in famine mode, and we're going to keep you from wasting away. Uh, Evolution has designed us uh, beautifully to protect us from from scarcity and starvation and famine. Um, Fortunately, the society we live in, we don't have to face that. But it's unfortunate when it comes to our weight because it means that our, our biology is essentially fighting us. And I think Uh, The same thing happens when we exercise, just as you referred to in that Biggest Loser study. When people exercise very vigorously, um, they can lose weight. But what's going to happen is their bodies are going to respond by slowing their metabolism down. uh, And their metabolism is going to end up – so let's say you go from 200 pounds to 150 pounds. Your metabolism is going to slow down uh, to even slower than it would be for someone who started at 150 is what the research shows. And so it becomes harder and harder to lose more weight and keep that weight off. And so that's not to say that weight loss is impossible, but it is to say that we have to recognize how our bodies actually work and take that into account rather than just thinking if we, if only we exercise more and eat less than, and, and reduce our calorie intake, we'll simply lose weight because it's not nearly that simple. Yeah, totally agree. I was fortunate enough to work with a metabolic cart for a better um, part of my career and could definitely anecdotally validate that that would be the case. And you can see it in in people even before you know you were able to run a test on them. You could definitely tell the people that were doing calorie counting, they would almost always be really cold. Um, they, might ha- they might be a little lean in their arms and legs, but definitely carrying a lot of fat around the midsection, definitely moody. And sure enough, when we would run those numbers, almost always they would come back lower than they should have for somebody um, you know, in the same demographic as them. It was pretty crazy. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's, and, and, and again, this is a, it's a very important point that is often lost in these kind of oversimplified pieces of advice we get. Mm, Interesting. You mentioned health claims and I don't tend to spend a lot of time in the middle part of the grocery store, but anytime I have to like walk by to get to the healthy food, sometimes I'll, I'll walk through the cereal aisle and it's incredible. (laughs) All of these boxes of colored foods, like screaming at you that they're so super healthy for you and your heart. Like, my goodness, it's hard to avoid, isn't it? It sure is. And again, it's a huge problem. Um, the, the lack of regulation, I would say, that they're allowed to do this. And the fact that um, you know, they can make all kinds of claims within sort of the boundaries of the law uh, that are highly misleading so that people think, you know, I'm going to buy this cereal. Oh, it's high in vitamins. Well, never mind that it's also high in sugar. Or I'm going to eat this cereal because it's high in fiber, but never mind that it's you know, largely junk food and high in refined grains and low in fiber. So I think the problem is that what these claims, these so they put a so-called health halo over these foods, uh, and it's very, very you know clever marketing to make us think that a particular food is good for us because they zero in on one particular aspect of the food, whether it's the fiber, whether it's the vitamins, or whether it's the protein or something else. And so what we do is we will falsely conclude that a food is good for us based on this marketing of one particular constituent in the food. Rather than understanding, the way we judge whether a food or a diet is good for us is by the, the totality 
of the uh, the makeup of that food, of the nutrient makeup of that food. And so that includes not just one component, it includes all the components looked at as a whole. It includes the fiber component, the protein component, uh, to some extent the calories, but as I say in the book, that certainly shouldn't, isn't necessarily the overriding concern always. Um, the sugar content, all these other things we look at as a whole, but what these marketing claims, I think, uh, really misleadingly do is cause us to look at one aspect of the food and draw, in many cases, false conclusions about the healthfulness of the food. Mm. You mentioned specifically Special K and uh, grape nuts. <laughs> and I, I, right. I was brought up on those <laughs> those cereals for sure. We just lost both of them as potential sponsors of the show, which is totally fine. Um, I remember with grape nuts, <laughs> grape nuts, I had to add like, I, I, I don't think it was any less than like half a cup of sugar to be able to get it down. Um can you talk a little bit about the cereal industry? I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up in your book, but can you talk about how cereal first got started? I find that story so interesting. Yeah, well, I talk about in the book to sort of the, trace a little bit of the history of this um, to the, uh, the most famous physician in America in the early 20th century, John Harvey Kellogg, whose name now uh, graces the Kellogg's uh, you know, food company. His, his brother, Will, who he worked with, actually broke away and formed the Kellogg uh, company that now exists. But uh, John, John, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and his brother, Will, invented what is essentially uh, ready-to-eat cereal. They invented it for their patients at Dr. Kellogg's health spa um, in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan. And uh, it was Dr. Uh, Kellogg's promotion of this cereal um, that helped uh, spur this idea that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And so I talk about sort of the history of this. And then uh, you, you mentioned Great Nuts. One of his patients was this guy named C.W. Post, um, who ended, ended up allegedly, he ended up allegedly stealing some of the recipes, the cereal recipes from the Kellogg's and developing his own he, uh, recipes. He set up shop right down the road in Battle Creek, Michigan, and started his own cereal company. Um, and uh, he was a brilliant marketer and, and took this idea and ran with it that eating cereal in the morning could do all kinds of amazing things for your health. And, um, and out of this was born, both through Kellogg and through Post, the idea that everybody should eat breakfast. And then eventually it led to ads uh, by Post that uh, eating cereal could help control your weight. And Kellogg's did the same thing with Special K. And so it's, it, I think, a large... Uh, impetus for this idea of this focus on breakfast being the more, most important meal of the day, which it turns out research shows is not necessarily the case, and eating cereal specifically to control weight um, were largely the result of very clever marketing by the cereal industry early on. Classic. You can't make this stuff up. Um, do we know, like through the history of humanity, do, did we ever eat breakfast? Was that ever a thing for us? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. I think that what, what we do know from history is the idea that we eat three meals a day, you know, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and this idea that this is something that's fixed that all of people in the history of humankind have done, that's not true. I mean, what, what research does show is that different societies throughout you know, the history of civilization have had different eating patterns. And there's nothing that's biologically optimal necessarily about eating three meals a day or eating breakfast or anything else. I think, you know, um, uh, tribal societies uh, have in the past have eaten when people uh, were had access to food and when they were hungry and didn't necessarily eat on a schedule. And so um, it's I think it's there's nothing wrong with eating three meals a day. But I think that the idea that you must eat three meals a day or that you have to eat breakfast or you have to eat in certain at times um, is not supported by any evidence or any you know history that we're aware of. Mm, yeah, interesting. I'm not sure on that either. I'm trying to imagine like a, a a clan of Vikings or something like before going into battle, like snacking on their cereal. I'll tell you <laughs> what, though, if you start your day with breakfast and you start with those breakfast cereals, good luck trying to just eat three meals a day because chances are you are going to become very, very, very hungry very quick. Yeah, that certainly can be true. I mean, I certainly everybody is different in, in terms of what their uh, patterns are and and how and, and what makes them hungry. But many of these cereals, as you say, most perhaps would be the correct term, are high in refined grains um, and high in sugar. And so all that's going to do is 
is not fill you up and leave you hungry and wanting to eat more food. So there's no question about that. Interesting. Um, you talk a little bit in, in the book about um, variety of different foods and how it may be a fallacy that that we have to include a, a very diverse diet with lots and lots of different things included in it. Can you comment a little on that? Yeah, that's something that's surprising to many people. And it was surprising to me when I read through this research because you know, often what we hear, and we've heard this for decades, is that it's important to eat a variety of foods for good health and for weight management. And increasingly, uh, you know, this this was something that's been around for 100 years. And so, um, you know, 100 years ago, it probably was true for good health because we didn't necessarily have the um, uh, the variety of foods we have today. And we also, um, you know, we didn't have fortified foods either. And so what uh, researchers have concluded is with the sort of variety of foods we naturally have in our diet, even if a diet that's considered not very, not extremely varied is still going to be varied by standards of 100 years ago, number one. And number two, there are a number of, whether you can help it or not, there are a number of foods that are fortified that we eat. And um, so it's much easier to get most of the nutrients you need in your diet, uh, more, far more so than it was 100 years ago. So the idea that you have to eat a bunch of different foods to get the nutrients you need is less true today than it was it has been in the past but but specifically w- with regard to weight loss um you know what research has actually shown and this is kind of interesting is that when people actually eat a greater variety of foods they tend to eat more food and if you you think about a buffet if you go to a buffet and there's a bunch of foods there um you're gonna maybe you know eat the roast beef and you may be tired of the roast beef, but you're still going to have room for something else. You'll have room for dessert. You'll have room for something else. And so the idea here is that the uh, wider array of foods we eat, the more we sort of get maybe tired of one thing, but then we have room, so to speak, for something else, just as you have room for dessert after your full-on dinner. So that some studies actually do show that people who've been successful at managing their weight actually eat a narrower range of foods. Um, than those who are less successful. So it doesn't mean you have to eat a boring diet. Doesn't mean that you have to eat the same thing over and over and over every day. But it does. It doesn't. It is an interesting finding from research that perhaps not uh, th- that perhaps limiting the uh, range of foods you eat somewhat can help with weight management. That is super interesting. I don't even think I knew that. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, although, again, I don't. I don't think I've ever considered that. And I also think we've lost a lot of seasonality, right? Like most people live in places where you're not just going to have food spontaneously growing all the time. There's a window of time when certain foods are going to be available. That's certainly true, um, and uh, that was true certainly in the old days. Nowadays, though, and I think one of the arguments as to why you can get more nutrients you need all the time from uh, uh, from it, just any kind of diet is that um, you can go to the supermarket and get foods that are imported from all kinds of places. So um, we can get bananas all year round if you need potassium. You can get all kinds of food all year round, whereas in the past that wasn't necessarily the case. So yeah, that's, that's something that's certainly a, a factor. Interesting. When we are learning about food and learning about what to do, why, why is it so difficult to comb through different studies to realize which ones are valid, which ones maybe are not as valid, the different quality of different studies? And then you do such a great job in the book also of showing like who pays for some of these studies. I mean, the avocado study that you mentioned in the book is hysterical. Yeah. Like, give me a break. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem with research. And let me just say, I believe in research. I mean, I believe in science and I think it's, I think it's the greatest tool in the history of humankind to separate what's true and what's not, because otherwise we're left with hunches and guesses and anecdotal observations, which are not reliable. So I believe in research, but that said, research, as you point out, is far from perfect. And in order for research to serve its intended purpose, we have to know how to interpret it because it's subject to all kinds of biases, one of which is certainly funding. And we see this in the food industry all the time. We see food manufacturers that fund studies um, to show that whatever, fill in the blank, whatever the food is, whether it's uh, pecans or avocados or blueberries, whatever the food may be, that their food has some kind of magical qualities that will result in some kind of great outcome. And um, we have to be wary in looking at studies to look not only at who funded the study, because that's very important to know if there's a potential bias, but also look at how the study was conducted, because not all studies are created equal. So a study that follows uh, 10 people for a week 
to see if there's some change in some blood marker is very different from a study that follows thousands of people for years to see if they had heart attacks. So you have to look at who was studied. You have to look at how long they were studied. You have to look at the methods that were used. You have to look at what was actually measured. And often these details are not readily apparent in the reports through the media or online we get. And so I think it's very important for us to be able to figure out what's believable and what's not to know those details. Now, obviously, it doesn't, none of us are, most of us are not scientists. We're not going to go dig up the studies and read them. That's not something that most of us have the desire or ability to do. But there are shortcuts, ways, at least questions we can ask and clues we can try to get from the the, uh, reports we see. And if you see something was done in mice, or if you see something was done in 10 people, that ought to be a tip off that that study is not very credible. And even if the study was done uh, by a reputable institution in thousands of people and lasted for years, just because it's one study is not necessarily a guarantee, uh, or just the fact that it's one study is not a guarantee that it's believable. We have to look at what scientists call the totality of the evidence, which means we have to look at all the studies combined. It's what I try to do in my work to look at all the studies and weigh these factors as I'm evaluating the research. But certainly you can get a sense of that by through certain publications. I, I recommend some of these in the book, things like the Harvard Nutrition Source, which I think is very good. That's online, the Harvard Nutrition Source, which does a good job of sort of sifting through this research and, and, and looking at the research as a whole. Um, there's a publication called Nutrition Action Health Letter, which you can subscribe to, put out by the Center for Science and the Public Interest that I think similarly does a good job. So I think it's, it's important to know where to go. Um, if you're interested in nutrition, if you're interested in cutting through this hype to try to get a sense of what the research as a whole actually shows rather than being uh, duped by hearing about one particular study. Mm, yeah, that is so very well explained. It's funny, you mentioned earlier hardware stores carrying food, and I can confirm that. I was at a hardware store yesterday getting a part for my sprinkling system, and I walked by a vending machine um, with a bunch of soft drinks behind it, and on the front, there's a sticker that says, balance what you eat, drink, and do. And Coca-Cola is part of the, um, what's it called, the Global Energy Nutri- uh, Balanced Nutrition. And, it, and yeah. uh, like looking at this sticker, like... Coke is not doing you any favors by telling you that you need to balance out your activity with the calories in and it's okay to, you know, drink this Coke as long as you go on a 30 minute walk. Like that, that's another really good way that you can tell that something is probably not as true as you think. Absolutely. And it's this, it's one of the big myths that we hear over and over and studies show that a lot of people understandably buy it, which is that, um, the way to make up for, overindulgence in eating is by simply going for a walk or taking a Pilates class or doing some yoga. And that because of this false equation, we get this math equation, you know, uh, energy balances, energy calories in calories out, um, that, uh, it, it's, it will simply, uh, it will simply counteract what we're doing. And, and that's a myth, as you say, that's often put out there by the, uh, by the food industry because it's a way of saying, well, it's okay. It's, you, it's, it's giving you license to eat whatever food, whether it's Coke or something else, that it's okay to eat this and to not worry about um, uh, it as much because you can simply go for a walk and it will counteract that. So that's a very dangerous idea. And I think an idea that's contributed to the um, obesity epidemic that we're currently in. Mm. We also do this thing too, where if somebody is really good or popular at one thing, we tend to kind of take their their advice about everything. So just because the Kardashians are eating a certain quote unquote superfood doesn't necessarily mean you should. <laughs> no, you're right. And, and we see this in with, I think the, in, the increasing influence of social media, I think that's become more and more of a problem is that people um, follow uh, whoever on Instagram, the Kardashians or whoever it may be and follow their diets and look at them and say, wow, they, they they have amazing bodies and I want to look like that. And um, and I want to find out what their secret is. And their, quote, secret is something that typically is not grounded in any kind of science and, uh, is, and what's left out are all the other things that those celebrities might do, including having a personal chef and a personal trainer and getting plastic surgery and being airbrushed in the photos and everything else um, <laughs> that is not mentioned. Um, and so we glom on to the one thing, whether it's the apple cider vinegar or the avocados or the a detox diet, whatever it may be that that celebrity supposedly says is, or says is supposedly the secret and are misled into thinking that if only we do this as well, that we'll look like that person. And it's, a, it's, it's I think, again, another big contributor to 
Um, the problem we have, because not only does it not result in success, but it, it's, it, it diverts people from things that really do matter that are going to help. Mm. And, and that's a big problem. Interesting. So what are your favorite superfoods that you're trying to push on us? Is it the celery juice, <laughs> the apple cider vinegar, like you mentioned, the jamoni juice? Like what, what, what are your favorites? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is about these foods, a lot of these foods are things that are part of a healthy diet. So you mentioned avocado. Avocado is a, can be a great food. It can be part of a weight-friendly diet. It's high in good fats. And so avocado is a perfectly good food to eat. Blueberries, strawberries, berries we hear about. Um, those are, there are a lot of uh, benefits from a health standpoint of eating berries but they're not a magical food. Eating berries in isolation is not going to result in lower weight or better heart health or better brain health or anything else. Um, particularly if your diet is otherwise lousy and you're not uh, moving your body and everything else. So the, the, the problem is not necessarily that these are bad foods or they're not helpful, but the, they are characterized in a misleading way as some kind of magic bullet rather than foods that are part of an overall healthy lifestyle. Mm. Well, we live in the outskirts of Salt Lake City, which is like the multi-level marketing capital of the world. And Boundless Body's business plan is to start some supplement company with some weird plant that grows in Indonesia or something. So if you ever want to get into our downline and um, sling some supplements with us, you just let us know. <laughs> um, do, you, do you find much value in supplementation? Um, do, or do you think by and large, um, it's mostly snake oil? I think there are certainly legitimate uh, uses of supplements. Supplements can be uh, useful in certain situations. I think there's decent evidence for uh, for fish oil in certain situations. Um, I think that uh, obviously if people are on a very low calorie diet um, or they have other nutrient deficiencies, if they're vegans, for example, I think a multivitamin is, can be important. Uh, and I think uh, there are other studies about various uh, nutrients, vitamins and minerals and for specific situations that can be helpful. So I think for there's evidence that specific nutrients in specific situations can be good. So I think in that case, they're not snake oil. And so I by no means just dismiss the entire supplement industry. But what I do say is that when it comes to weight loss, um, the vast majority are useless. A few, may, a few supplements may result in a little bit of weight loss for some people, but there's no evidence that it's uh, sustainable. And most important, um, there's not evidence whether they're safe. And, and lots of these supplements for weight loss have combinations of ingredients that haven't been tested together. So we don't really know how well they work together. We don't know how safe they are together. And so there are real concerns about safety. So I would say by and large, when it comes to weight loss supplements, um, there's little, if any evidence that they're effective. And yet people spend billions of dollars literally on these supplements in hopes that popping a pill will make a difference for them when in fact, um, in, in most cases, it's not going to do any good at all. And in some cases, it may even do harm. But I just want to keep eating ultra processed foods and never moving at all. And you just give me a pill so that everything will be okay for me. <laughs> it's kind of our attitude. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very luring idea. Yeah. Interesting. So I, you know, for better part of my career was paid to sell supplements. And in the beginning, I kind of just thought like, okay, I don't know exactly how all these things are interacting. So just take everything and it will surely just cover whatever deficiencies you have. And it sounds like we probably agree with this. Now, if I'm going to, you know, suggest a supplement to somebody, I better have a really good reason why that person should be taking something. Is that kind of the way you approach it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I have, and people have asked me my personal advice and I have sent them studies and said, for your particular situation, here's evidence that this supplement would help you for your situation. So I, I agree with you hundred percent, but I think this idea that everybody or most of us should generally be taking supplements just to be well, um, is, is a real fallacy. Yeah. Interesting. A B vitamin for somebody that wants to follow a vegetarian or vegan diet, or maybe like if you work in your basement all day, like maybe a vitamin D pill or something like that. You mentioned fish oil, which I, I agree. I think that's a really helpful one for a lot of people. Um, interesting. And what about medications? Um, we've had some um, interesting medications over the years um, that, that get approved and work and then end up not working and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Do we have any good, reliable medications that we can use for weight loss? There are there's a handful of medications on the uh, on the market now. Um, one that was just actually approved uh, very recently 
um, that's actually a diabetes drug that's now doubling as a weight loss medication um, that's been shown to be more effective than any, of the, than any of the others. There's a big debate now on whether insurance should cover it. Currently, it doesn't cover that or other weight loss drugs. And the manufacturers and other advocates are trying to persuade insurance companies to cover the cost. Doctors generally have been reluctant in recent years to, um, uh, to prescribe these drugs, in part because of the fact that they have lots of side effects. They can have lots of side effects. Um, I think the way that I look at them is these drugs for certain people can be a leg up. They can help um, kickstart your efforts and, and make it a little easier to lose weight. Um, but I think it, it, people also have to go in knowing that they may have side effects and that in most cases they have to take these drugs for the long term because when they stop taking the drugs, the drugs will stop working. Um, I, in the book, I do talk about the history of weight loss drugs, which goes back all the way to the 19th century. And there have been all kinds of things that have been proposed over the years, some of which actually worked, but in many cases came, in all cases, all actually came with, if they worked, came with side effects, which in some cases were fatal. Um, so, which is not, a, which is probably not a, a good risk benefit profile. So, um, good way to lose so weight. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, I think we have to remain aware of the history of weight loss drugs and have some, I think, humility about this. And when we hear, oh, this is a game changer, and now science has really discovered the cure for weight loss, take this drug, I think we need to be mindful of history that we've seen this movie over and over and over again for the last. 100 plus years, um, and that, um, yes, there may be some advances, and some of these drugs may help in certain situations, but not to have irrational exuberance, as it were, when it comes to medications and thinking that, it, that taking a pill is going to be the answer, that it's going to be uh, the, 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 the solution to our weight c control and not have any side effects. Because mm -hmm. um, there have been several medications that had promise, and then in the last Several years were withdrawn because they were found to increase the risk of strokes or risk of cancer. And so we have to remain aware that any drug that appears right now to be safe and effective may turn out later on not to be as safe as we thought. Mm. I think about like Fenfen is like the big one. And wasn't it almost like methamphetamine yeah. or something where like people would like tweak out on it? Yeah. Well, well, Fenfen is a great example of this phenomenon where there was a, if for those old enough to remember, a Fenfen craze. Uh, 20 years ago or so, I think. Uh, and um, uh, there are actually it was in the 90s, I think. But there were uh, you know, these two drugs that were prescribed together because studies have shown these two drugs, which had been in, around a long time, if you combine them, um, fenfluramine and fentramine, they're called, could result in considerable weight loss. And so all these doctors and others jumped on the bandwagon and people started demanding the drug and doctors were making a lot of money prescribing them. And, it, and it, it, there was this huge craze for several years over these drugs, uh, only for researchers to figure out that they were call, causing heart, heart valve abnormalities. Uh, and there were serious side effects. And eventually uh, this combination was stopped and one of the drugs was taken off the market. So again, that's a great example of a of, of a case where people went crazy thinking this is the answer and it turned out to not be the answer into something that actually caused harm for people. Mm, interesting. You write a little bit in your book about hormones as well. And I seem to change my mind about this <laughs> every hour of the day. I sometimes could see certain situations where taking um, hormones exogenously like testosterone or estrogen would be, you know, okay or warranted. And other times it just doesn't seem like a great idea. So honest question, like where are you and your opinion on taking exogenous hormones? I think if there's truly a deficiency and that's the key, truly a deficiency, whether it's a thyroid hormone or testosterone, um, then it can certainly be, uh, beneficial. And so in that case, the benefits may would outweigh the risk. But I think the key there is defining what a deficiency is. I think the problem is, for example, when it comes to thyroid uh, deficiency, um, medicine has a standard definition of what thyroid deficiency is. And there's some doctors that'll say, well, the threshold is wrong. You really have a deficiency at a higher level than what medicine says. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prescribe this to you. And by the way, this will help with you, help you with weight loss. Well, it's certainly true. It will. If you take more thyroid hormone, it can promote weight loss for many people. But the problem is that it's going to be uh, resulting in some side effects that are not good. So um, the same thing is true with testosterone. There's, it's unclear. Uh, scientists aren't sure about the side effects. There's debate about whether it increases cardiovascular effects or uh, pros or uh, and, uh, and harms the prostate, maybe leads to prostate cancer. There's debate about that, and studies have been conflicting. 
but there's enough evidence to be wary about taking testosterone, for example. And so where I come down on that is that if you're uncertain about the risk and there's at least the potential for risk, um, the benefits better, darn well better be firmly established. And you better be sure of those benefits. They, may, they should be proven through studies before you run the risk of taking that supplement. Mm. So that's where I would come out on it. And I would say with regard to weight loss, um, the, um, I think the, the risks, in my view, for most people are going to outweigh the benefits, certainly when it comes to weight loss. Hmm, interesting. I also think about that long term. And I, I, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but in my mind, I would think that if you're taking something from the outside, that your body would downregulate its own production of it even further. That, again, I, I, I don't know that that's the case, but that's just what would make sense to me. But do you have an opinion on that? Um, well, certainly we see that with thyroid. I think they're, you know, I, I'm not a physician, but I, I think that um, if people don't need thyroid and start taking it uh, in, in pill form, then their thyroid's going to ramp down in terms of what it's producing. So, yes, I agree with that. Um, I think one thing I would add is with regard to we've seen a real life example of what can happen when we get, get sort of overexcited about um, uh, taking hormones, as we see with women with hormone replacement therapy. We saw what happened. Uh, and people that are familiar with this history will will warn us about this. Then, you know, uh, hormone replacement therapy for women was touted for years as something that all women, uh, menopausal women, should do to keep their brains uh, in shape and get their skin looking good and looking young and, and their hearts uh, uh, healthy and so forth. And 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 number of doctors prescribed uh, hormone replacement therapy for women, and millions of women took hormone replacement therapy only to learn after years that this was actually increasing the risk of breast cancer, the risk of strokes, and it was in many cases having the opposite effect with regard to cardiovascular health as intended. So um, I think it's a very important cautionary tale about taking any kind of hormones because um, there are millions of women that ended up suffering greatly with breast cancer and other effects thinking that they were doing themselves good by taking those hormones. Mm. Yeah, very well explained. It's interesting. Um, I don't know if you know this about humans, but we're not necessarily the best of thinking through uh, solutions. <laughs> and sometimes what we what we consider an improvement has unintended consequences. And so, uh, you know, the, the obesity thing is just going way in the wrong direction. We, we come up with things that we think will help. And so something like a sugar tax. I know some cities have done this. Um, I'm not sure if any states have done it on, on a statewide level, but definitely at, at, a, at different city levels, we put a tax on sugar, try to put a tax on sugar. Can you tell us a little bit about the unintended consequences to that? Yeah, it's something that I, I talk about and, and, and have thought a lot about because, you know, a lot of times this issue gets, as many things do, um, framed through politics and either people are, you know, pro-regulation or anti-regulation or they think that uh, they, they see it through a political lens. I don't see it that way. I see it strictly through a health lens, which is how I try to view that and other issues. And so I think with regard to taxing foods such as soda, sugar-sweetened beverages, um, while in theory it may sound good, you say, well, it's like cigarettes, right? We tax cigarettes and cigarette consumption has gone down. But the difference is that cigarettes generally is either a yes or no decision. So you either buy cigarettes or you don't buy cigarettes. Now, obviously, they're, you, you could buy, you could vape, something like that. But generally, it's a yes or no decision. With food, it's far more complicated. So if you tax um, let's say soda, and people may, people may buy less soda if it's taxed heavily enough, but then they're not necessarily going to drink water. They may end up buying, instead of soda, they may buy juice and think, oh, well, that's better. I'll buy juice. Well, juice in many cases has as many, if not more calories than soda, and it can have more sugar. So juice is, even if it's uh, pure orange juice or pure fruit juice, is not necessarily a better option when it comes to your weight. Or they may, may get beer, or they may get chocolate milk, or they may get, or they may buy chips. So the point is that simply by taxing the foods, we don't have evidence that that's going to actually result in lower weight. We have evidence, some evidence that will result in less soda consumption. People may buy less soda, but we don't know whether it will lead to more healthful purchases or it will lead to lower weight. And so my, my concern is that, number one, if we don't have strong evidence that that kind of intervention is going to lead to the results we want it's a bad idea to implement it because already we understand, we've seen through COVID, people understandably are very averse to having their freedoms restricted and being told what to do. And so if we're going to do that, we better make darn sure that we know that what we're advocating is going to work as intended. And we can't say that with soda taxes. We don't know that. Mm. And the other, the bigger concern I have, and that's certainly a concern because I think it further undermines trust in science and public health, 
when public health people say, here, do this, we're going to restrict your soda by, by taxing it, and then it doesn't work, people are going to be even more distrustful of science. But I think an even bigger issue is that we end up having these big battles over soda, whether we should tax it and what we should do, when soda by itself is not the main cause of obesity. And, and, and it is a cause, as a number of other things are, but it's not the main cause. And so we've seen over the years, soda consumption has actually gone down, but obesity rates have gone up. So even if we were to restrict it even more, there's no, we, we can't say that this would result in lower obesity rates. And so what happens is we get distracted by having these kinds of debates instead of focusing on what's really important, which is what is, in my view, is the overall quality of our diets, not whether it includes food A or food B or soda or not soda. It's the overall quality of our diets. That's the issue. That's what matters the most when it comes to our weight. And, and I think in having a debate over whether to tax soda or to have these other measures, we lose sight of the bigger issue, which is um, how we're, our, our overall eating patterns and how we can help people improve those. Dr. Davis, I can't even imagine a world where we would lose uh, trust in public health. <laughs> we, we goofed that one up pretty bad since the pandemic. Um, the other thought that I have um, is, is diet soda. Is, is there, you know, if, if you tax the soda, does that same tax go over to diet soda? And what, what is the evidence out there that diet soda is better for you? This is something, again, that I change my mind on all the time. Well, that's an excellent point. Uh, and in fact, what the studies show, by and large, and this is surprising to people, that artificial sweeteners, diet soda does not result in lower weight. And people often find this surprising and say, well, they don't have calories. Why, why wouldn't they result in lower weight? And this gets back to, I think, the shortcoming of the calories in, calories out model, because it's just far more complex than that. In the case of um, artificial sweeteners or, or sugar substitutes, as they're called, and, uh, and diet drinks and so forth, what the studies show is that um, these, the theories at least, are that these substances, these beverages, can have a, do a number on our brains in certain ways. For example, um, that when we consume a diet beverage, our brains think that we're getting uh, we're, we're getting calories. We don't get the calories, and so we end up craving food even more. So we end up eating more after we consume that diet beverage. Now that's a theory; it's not proven, but it's at least one explanation, one hypothesis as to why diet uh, drinks don't result generally in studies in lower weight. Um, and it's also possible that we drink diet beverages and we feel virtuous. So it's the, it's, I like to say, I'll have uh, a, a Big Mac, a large fries and a diet Coke. So if we say, okay, well, we're being good. We're having that diet drink so we can overindulge in other ways. So it's sort of whether we realize it or not, it's an unconscious thing that we, we may think that drinking a diet drink allows us to overindulge in other ways. So whatever the reason, there are different possibilities. Um, generally, diet drinks don't work as intended. And, um, and there are also studies that link them to a number of adverse health effects, um, cardiovascular effects and other things. And so it doesn't mean that they cause those things, but they are linked through research to those effects. So all in all, I would say that diet, uh, you know, uh, diet beverages, artificially sweetened beverages, sugar substitutes, are not proven to be an effective way to manage weight and could, in some cases, make the situation worse. Mm, yeah, I think anecdotally, if we just look around, I think most of us would come to a common sense um, kind of conclusion that's probably not the best thing to have in the diet. Um, it's really interesting. I love the way you wrote your book, and every chapter you know, tackles one of these subjects, but then it concludes with a few simple tips. And it's not you know, 10, 15 different things to do. It's just two or three things to maybe consider. And you don't promote any one type of diet. It's just kind of the, the collective, you know, diet altogether. And so it, it's easy to be deficit minded when we're talking about some of these things and almost like lose hope. Like, well, great. Like, what can I eat? There's nothing to eat for eliminating all these things. Can you talk about some of the, the core principles that you promote that are things that people can be doing, they can include, they can feel really good about when they're constructing their diet? Sure. And I think the most important is to focus on a whole foods diet, a largely plant-based diet. And what I like to say about that is that it's not really even a diet. I don't like the word diet because um, it implies something that you follow short-term and then you lose the weight and then you go off the diet. And what we're talking about here is a way of eating, an eating plan, an eating pattern that you can sustain for life. And the great thing about a whole foods way of eating is that there's a lot of flexibility to it. You can uh, tailor it to your preferences, your needs. And so what, this, what does this include? Well, it generally includes fruits, 
vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, fish, lean meats, eggs, dairy if you consume dairy, and minimizing highly processed foods, things like chips and soda and sweets, uh, french fries, things like that. Now, it doesn't mean you never eat those. It means it doesn't mean they're toxic or they're off limits the way that some diets tell you never can eat certain foods. It just means that over time, if these are a regular part of your diet, you try to consume them less often, and that can happen over time less and less often. And when you do consume them, you have them in a limited portions and you eat them as treats. Um, but, but the great thing about focusing on whole foods is that um, there are all kinds of possibilities. You can have whatever macros you want, meaning percentage of carbs, fats, protein, whatever works for you. Um, you can do a variety of, of that. You can eat, if you like certain foods, include those, but you're not forced to eat foods you don't like. And you can construct a diet in a way that's going to be tasty for you, that's going to fill you up, and that most important, you're going to be able to consume for the rest of your life. And that, to me, is the most important thing, not only for your weight, but also your health. And the good thing is that um, eating in that way promotes both. And it's the, it's the way that I think um, uh, it, it, it's a simple thing. It's not something, it's not a magical formula. It's not a rules-based way of eating. Um, so it does require some trial and error. But I think in the end, this is the way that people can eat so that they feel satisfied and they feel that they're not being deprived, which is important because if you feel deprived, if you feel you're sacrificing too much, in the end, you're not going to be able to stick with that way of eating. So I think, I think eating in that way, approach, uh, using a whole foods approach to eating is the most important thing people can do to manage their weight. I love that. I think that's really very reasonable and you know wide ranging for everybody. People can choose what course they want. When somebody is first switching over from highly processed foods, ultra processed foods, um, you know, kind of like the the writer Michael Moss talks about how um, you know we're able to make these foods maximally salty and sweet and fatty all at the same time, which is a really bad combination. It's almost like when you switch over to whole foods in the beginning, the foods are a little bland. But have you noticed over time the more you push into whole foods? Food, the better and better those foods taste and the worse um, ultra processed foods end up ta tasting over time? Absolutely. And I'm an example. I'm a living example of somebody who's gone through this process. When I was growing up, I ate every bad food imaginable. My diet consisted of, of soda and Pop-Tarts and sugary cereals and donuts and cupcakes and, you know, hamburgers and French fries. <laughs> you name it. That's what I ate. And so it was when I got to college and became interested in nutrition that I said, huh, maybe the way I'm eating isn't so great and um, started changing my eating patterns. But I did it very gradually over a number of years. There was no way for the reason you said that these foods are manufactured for us to crave these foods and to want to consume more and more. And so it took me a number of years to gradually change my uh, eating habits, but my taste buds changed so that I came to not only miss those foods less and less, but also enjoy these other foods more and more, exactly as you're describing. And I think that's a key point that people need to not expect themselves to be able to change overnight, but to be patient and to make gradual small changes. So if you have, you know, you eat a candy bar every day, then cut back to every other day. And maybe, you know, on the other days, try fruit so that you, you make very small changes in your diet. Um, and that over time, you will see that your taste buds do in fact change. And then that the way that you crave these foods and couldn't do without these foods before subsides and your enjoyment of whole foods actually increases. Love that. I'm so glad that you promote gradual changes in your book. I, I think that's such a smart way to promote it because you, you give people a win. It's just get a little win. Um, you know, put your gym shoes on, even if you don't go outside, did you do something really small that seems on a scale of one to 10, you know, like a one or a two for difficulty. That's really easy that you can do. And once you get one little taste of a win, you're more likely to do another one and another one, another one. And those things compound over time. I think that's such a smart way to go about things. Um, Okay, so I am super curious about this question. What do you do? Um, what What is a normal day for you? What are the things that you personally include in your diet and your workout regime? Um, like you said earlier, you're a very healthy guy. Um, you know, you're you're showing us all how to how to be more healthy ourselves. So, what things constitute your day? So I am uh, my. My approach is that I try to be mindful of at all my meals of getting. A protein, so a little bit of protein to help fill me up. So at, at all the meals, I'll eat some protein. So for example, in the morning, I'll eat eggs or egg whites, um, or um, uh, you know, uh, or other foods that are giving me some protein. Um, I 
am, uh, I do eat throughout the day. I know some people do better where they eat a limited number of foods. For me, it works better to sort of stay fueled throughout the day. So I'll eat meals, but I eat s- small snacks in between my meals just to keep hunger at bay um, so that I don't overeat uh, at meals. Um, and I eat lots of whole grains. So I'm big on fiber. Uh, so I eat lots of fiber. That's something else that is great, not only for, for digestive health, but also it helps filling up. So I eat uh, foods that are high in fiber, which includes not only fruits and vegetables, but also whole grains. Um, and I try to get some kind of vegetable at each meal um, as well. Uh, I don't always succeed. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that every meal is going to be like this, but at least it's a goal. It's an aspiration. Um, and then um, as for and then I also enjoy sweets. So I, I love ice cream. I don't eat that every day, but I eat it once a week or so and enjoy it as an occasional treat. And I love chocolate. So I eat uh, as a way of sort of craving my uh, desire for chocolate. I'll eat uh, dark chocolate. So I've learned to like dark chocolate uh, and that's low in sugar. And so I'll eat a square or two every night after dinner just as a way of sort of uh, satisfying my sweet tooth. And that tends to work very well for me. Um, as far as exercise, I, I try to get some kind of uh, physical activity in every day. I do a combination of things. I'm a runner, so I do that several days a week. I do high intensity intervals one day a week with running. Um, I go to the gym and and do traditional weight training, and then I also do boot camp boot camp kind of uh, workout uh, once a week or so. And then I love to hike. So I live in California, where they're great Southern California. They're great hiking trails. So I'm uh, I try to do that uh, as well. And uh, so I, I try to do a combination of things uh, just to stay active and. Um, it's important whenever I can just to move my body. And it, it, it's, it's something that I really can't live without. You know, it's something I started in college doing, feeling, okay, I have to learn to run and I have to learn to move my body because I wasn't particularly athletic as a kid and didn't move my body much. But I've learned over the years, it's, it's become something not just that I have to do, but something I want to do and something I must do in order to feel good, uh, to, to be able to get through my day and feel good and, um, and, and to have a sense of, of inner peace and calm. So for a variety of reasons, exercise um, has become a, a, a huge part of my life. That's fantastic. That seems like that could be something that's very well-managed and easy to continue doing for the rest of your life. Are there any other lifestyle practices that you leverage in your life um, and really make a priority? Well, certainly sleep is important. Um, I do my best. Again, we all have challenges. We have busy lives. And so that's it's not 100% possible all the time for all of us. But I really do put an emphasis on getting enough sleep. That's really important. And I talk in the book about how sleep is important for weight management, as well as for uh, a number of other things, just for our overall health and for managing stress. Um, And so um, that's important. And then also, you know, I think um, uh, social interactions, connections to other people, that's just such an, it's often overlooked as an important part of health, but it, it is so important and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a significant other. It can be friends. It can be uh, people around us. But having connections to other people, um, I think, is important for our, our emotional well-being and important for our physical well-being, both. And um, that's something that I really put great stock in. I love that. I think one of the common things in all the blue zones, like we talk about blue zones where people tend to live longer than other people. And, you know, we get, we get so myopic on, well, what are they eating? What are they eating? And I think a lot of people don't realize most of those communities have great connection already in place in their society. And I believe they're all located next to hills or in places where you have to travel up and down. And so you're basically doing a form of strength training, which I think both Mm -hmm. of those are totally reasonable and, and necessary for a long and healthy life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's awesome. Man, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I absolutely love your book. If, if somebody were to take one thing from this conversation and apply it into their lives, what would you want that one thing to be? I would say be uh, skeptical, but don't become cynical. Hmm. So be aware that mu- much of what you're hearing is false. But don't let that turn into cynicism where you don't believe anything and throw up your hands and say, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to just let fate take its course with regard to my health and my weight, because that's not true either. And so it's, it's, I would say find a middle ground, and I hope my work can help people do that, between skepticism and cynicism so that they can not believe everything they hear, but all at the same time not dismiss everything, too, that may be helpful. And to, uh, and to lose hope 
and lose confidence that they can, in fact, do things for themselves that are going to make a difference and make a long-term difference in their health and well-being. Fantastic. What great advice. I love that. Dr. Davis, where do you want people to go to find you, connect with you, and find your work? They can uh, go to healthyskeptic.com, healthyskeptic.com. That's where I have information about my work. I have a number of videos on there that I've created about a lot of the topics we've talked about, short videos. And uh, you can get access to, you can find my books there. You can also go to Amazon. My books are available on Amazon, the latest one that will be out soon called Super Size Lies. You can find it there. So either place, you can find my work. That's fantastic. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Dr. Robert J. Davis, author of Supersize Lies, thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you for doing the heavy lifting and the digging and really exploring some of this stuff and giving us a resource that not only shows us, just like you said, like where where, where we can go astray, but also showing us where we can go right. And it's very empowering. It's it's they're, they're simple things that people can do, and it's for their own improvement and can improve their lives. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you for your latest book. And thank you for taking the time to appear on our show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Casey, so much. Really enjoyed it. It was an absolute honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.